There's never a dull moment with Elon Musk and certainly with his uh, legal strategy vis-a-vis his feels like never-ending fight with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And this one was no exception in terms of the creativity uh, and, you know, the forcefulness with which his attorney is making this argument. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Today, I have back with me Professor Karen Woody, and we're going to take a look at the motion filed by Elon Musk and his lawyers to abrogate the consent agreement he entered into in 2018 around his tweets about taking Tesla public and then withdrawing them a week later. We look at the legal reasoning, the case law, the facts, and the equities. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. And today we're going to take one from the headlines. And I'm joined by Professor Karen Woody. We're going to look at a motion filed by Elon Musk's counsel to have his 2018 consent decree either abrogated, held invalid, no longer effective or something. So, Karen, first of all, welcome. Thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. Karen, you had an incredibly provocative tweet which led to this uh, podcast, which was the gift that keeps on giving to SEC law professors. Why is Elon Musk the gift that keeps on giving to law professors who specialize in the Securities and Exchange Commission? There's never a dull moment with Elon Musk and certainly with his uh, legal strategy vis-a-vis his what feels like never-ending fight with the Securities and Exchange Commission. And this one was no exception in terms of the creativity uh, and, you know, the forcefulness with which his attorney is making this argument um, that this one in particular is about him having his First Amendment rights um, trampled upon based on the parameters of the consent decree he signed, you know, now over three years ago. So it's an interesting wrinkle and it's, it's, there's never a dull moment with him. And I think that's part of it. I, the irony here is that when Elon Musk counsel files something, it's news. And that fact in itself kind of cuts against their own argument, which is everyone pays attention. Tesla shares rise and fall on these things. Uh, and so anytime that guy does say something, um, people pay attention. Um, and so it actually is, ironically, a little bit an opposite of what he's trying to say, which is he just wants to be able to speak his mind. But there are consequences all the time. So we find ourselves in the same place again, um, trying to figure out what uh, what it is that we can do to make Elon happy, um, but also realize that he's still very much uh, in trouble for things he's the things that he tweets and his sort of disregard for um, for the consequences of, of his tweets. Can we perhaps uh, take a step back and could you remind our audience what the 2018 consent decree, uh, agreement was for and the requirements it put up Mr. Musk under? That is definitely the best place to start. Um, so in 2018, um, Elon tweeted uh, a series of posts on August 7th. Uh, that he had lined up funding and support to take Tesla private at $420 per share. Um, And he also tweeted that he had funding secured for that. Um, There was some, you know, this obviously caused much of a stir. 
uh, in the markets. Uh, and there was some discussion that even this was a bit of a joke that he had sort of the 420 was some, you know, nod to marijuana and that he, you know, had smoked a joint, I think on the Joe Rogan show, something that there was a lot that they just thought he was being provocative and silly. Um, but it caused enough of a bit of, of a hubbub that the SEC obviously looked into it uh, and so very much uh, was interested in what it is he was saying and how much investors knew about that, um, how much his board knew about it before he tweeted that. So it set off, again, this um, firestorm with the SEC filing a complaint against him for securities fraud. Um, that complaint and sort of that fight gets settled, and the settlement was a consent decree. And in the consent decree, we had, you know, a few requirements. Well, first, both Elon and Tesla ended up paying $20 million um, in order to settle these claims. But then there were a few other wrinkles to it that became important. Elon had to step down as the chairman um, and not, and he had to uh, appoint independent directors to the board. That had been something that I think had been somewhat problematic um, at, at Tesla for a while that everyone assumed it was a very much a captured board, his brothers on it, that he much, he very much sort of ruled it with an iron fist. Um, and so there was the requirement that they add two independent directors to the company board um, they had to, the board had to create, um, or Tesla had to create on the board, a permanent committee of independent directors to oversee the disclosures and public statements of its senior executives. Most of which we're just talking about Elon here. They also had to hire, uh, a particularized securities lawyer in house also to review communications made on social media made by any of the senior officers and make sure it was consistent with the company's policy of disclosures. Um, and then they're also in the um, settlement, at least with Tesla, there's this very clear um, requirement that Tesla implements procedures and controls to oversee Elon Musk communications regarding the company made in any format. And they said, including, but not limited to Twitter, his websites, press releases, so they had, he basically needs to get sign-off from the company in order to make uh, some of these tweets, which he has not necessarily always complied with. Um, so that's some of where we are uh, today, that there have been other things that he said that, you know, he got since in trouble with, uh, you know, a year later. Um, he's also has a number of subpoenas related to um recent activity about saying he's going to do a Twitter poll to decide whether he's going to sell off uh, $10 million in stock, these kind of things. So the SEC is always a little bit breathing down his neck to say, you know, all of this is real close to the line. In fact, most of this might even be over the line of what we agreed to back in 2018. But Elon, um, again, first toes very close to the line, if not over it. But then he also pushes back and has asked the court to um, re now revisit the consent decree entirely. But every step of the way, he's asked to quash the subpoenas. He thinks the SEC is uh, unrelenting in its, you know, attack and it's uh, against him. So this is just the most recent one, really. So let's leave the motion, the part of the motion to terminate the consent degree, degree to decide and focus on the procedural claims to quash the, or procedural request, rather, to quash the um, subpoenas. Uh, 
Law 360 uh, did a report on this, and in their report, they said that um, the uh, Council for Tesla had previously asked the court to uh, quash the subpoenas separately. The SEC resisted that, and the judge in the case, Judge Nathan, denied the motion saying, quote, she was unclear on exactly what the car maker and its CEO were asking for, for, end quote, and that they could seek to quash the SEC's latest subpoena if they had a, quote, non-frivolous basis for doing so. So is the way this this memorandum is laid out, does that provide some basis to quash these subpoenas, uh, Karen? You know, it's a great question because you're right. The memo that was filed yesterday um, by his attorney is making the, both those quests, motion to quash and the motion to just terminate this consent decree entirely. But for whatever reason, it does to me as I read through this motion, those things get a little bit muddled in between them uh, in, in terms of how the subpoenas um, start to become part of the broader argument about how all of this has been an onslaught against Elon in terms of the motion to quash here, you know, I don't, I don't know that, you know, that's, you know, basically kind of only part of this uh, motion and not the, I don't think the majority of it. Um, they just says, we don't think that there's a legitimate investigatory purpose here that the SEC is looking into. That to me seems like a bit of a stretch. They're pointing to uh, rule 30, the SEC is basing its investigation based on a violation, potential violation of Rule 13A15, which deals with disclosure controls and procedures. Um, that is often in relation to prepared uh, and periodic reports on a company. So that, that's sort of what they're trying to hang their hat on. Um, and so Musk's attorney is really attacking that as being enough of, uh, you know, creating, as I think they even say, the jurisdiction or authority of the SEC to go after all these additional documents. Um, and so th- there might be some, you know, some daylight on this potential procedural argument, but at the end of the day, I think when you, in red, when it's read in totality, it doesn't to me seem what, you know, outlandish that of course the SEC is still looking into these tweets and things he's said recently that have, again, moved markets, created, you know, sort of, pretty wild swings on Tesla's stock. And so I, th- I think all these things might eventually be a bit of a losing argument because it's impossible to separate out in everyone's mind sort of, you know, what Elon has been tweeting and then the effects of that and that to not see that sort of in its totality. Um, whether 13A15, you know, that sort of esoteric rule of the Exchange Act um, is enough to allow the SEC to ask for these things? I think it is. It's probably not the most common way. It does seem to me like this could be just sort of straight uh, enforcement action type of a problem. Like this could be a straight securities fraud type investigation based on what he'd been tweeting. That's possible. But they're doing this sort of a more procedural way. Um, and I think that's what Elon's uh, lawyer is attacking. Um, I don't, I don't imagine that will be successful. I think they already were up against um, uh, the judge denying this just a few weeks ago, and they're coming back trying to point to this as the legitimate request to quash the subpoena. I doubt that this will be enough. We're going to take a break for a quick message from our sponsor and be right back. 
Now let's turn to the request to terminate the consent decree. And here, Musk's counsel brings forward three uh, arguments. Number one, the consent decree should be terminated because it's become unworkable. And number two, that the SEC has used the consent decree to police First Amendment speech. And number three, that the equities favor termination. Now, uh, to start their motion, at least this portion of their motion, the uh, counsel for Musk cites some district court cases which say that a district court has inherent authority to terminate or to modify a consent decree. And uh, I believe that I feel like once you've subjected yourself to the jurisdiction of the court, the court always has that jurisdiction. So I think the court does have jurisdiction to do this. But the arguments uh, that they make, number one, uh, is that um, it's not workable any longer because the circumstances have changed. And those uh, circumstances, as as you suggested, Karen, some of their arguments tend to, to bleed into each other. But the circumstances are that um, the SEC has engaged in basically never-ending investigations and has abused these subpoenas. Number two, that they've abused these subpoenas around speech, which they, uh, they being Musk lawyers, say is protected First Amendment speech. This is not political or religious speech. This is basically business speech. And I think there's a separate part of, uh, separate category, I should say, of speech and it's not given the same First Amendment rights as political speech. Uh, so for him to talk about business decisions or things he's thinking about, I don't think falls into political speech. And in terms of uh, the equities, um, many years ago, I learned that there is one action in federal court. Uh, it is both law and inequity. There is no longer equitable actions so that you can bring an action uh, in U.S. federal court based upon U.S. federal civil procedure, and it can be an equitable action. But an equitable action means that uh, the fairness of what came before has changed, and the fairness argument they make is a couple of different points. One is that the only reason um, Musk signed this was economic duress, and that economic duress was he couldn't afford to defend himself or he could Tesla couldn't afford to defend itself previously. So this was 2018. I'm not a Tesla shareholder, so I'm not aware of what the share price was at then, although it was somewhat less than 420, we know. Uh, so uh, it, it, I think it's a pretty tough argument for them to make that um, there was an economic duress um, which caused him to sign this consent decree. And the second argument is generally, hey, I never meant to not be able to talk about my company. Um, So that's mutual fraud, mistake, and misrepresentation. And I'm not quite sure that argument gets him there either. Is there, is, have I missed something here? Or do you see really an, uh, an argument for him to make to get him to the point where uh, the consent decree is terminated? 
No, I, I think you're right. I don't see much uh, daylight on this argument. And you're right. I guess I should have clarified about, you know, certainly this memo does bifurcate those two things between the termination of the dissent decree and quashing the subpoenas. But it does seem like the theme of all this is that the SEC is acting in bad faith, is being unrelenting toward him. And, you know, even in the subpoenas thing, they link it to, they they assume that the subpoenas are being issued to have, because the SEC wants to ensure his compliance with the consent decree. So these things, like I said, get, start to, to, to get intermingled in the, the argument here a little bit. Um, I think you're right that at the end of the day here, he's, they say, you know, he changed his mind. Circumstances are different now from when he signed in 2018. And he was forced to sign in 2018 because of the apparently dire circumstances Tesla was in. I don't know if that's entirely uh, the case, particularly because both Musk and Tesla both made a $20 million uh, payment to the SEC in, in, um, in the form of a fine. And so you're right. I think I, I defer to you on some of the speech issues. I know that's interesting. And I think um, the fact that, you know, that alone, I think, is a bit of a stretch. There, you know, all that he's asked to do is follow Tesla policies and have someone review his statements before they're made, which is not, first of all, unheard of for a number of powerful CEOs that know that their statements will be read by analysts and people who will maybe uh, have that um, given indication of which way the stock price will go. So it seems like he's trying to pretend that he's just sort of a average Joe who's not able to tweet what he wants. But I think we all know that's not the case. And if anything, hindsight shows that's not the case. That's why he's in trouble here. When he does tweet these things, you know, the markets go uh, all over the place in terms of um, Tesla stock. And so he needs to be aware of that um, responsibility he has. So it does seem a little bit disingenuous that now he's miffed he signed something a few years ago that he thinks stifles his speech. And I think, you know, their final pitch, which is exactly what you said, which is, you know, equity here demands that we just terminate that settlement we made a few years ago because it is hard, as as you said, it's untenable to keep up with. And it's also, um, you know, they bring up this concept of economic duress. I can't imagine that that is the case for Elon Musk, but I don't, I'm not entirely sure how having his uh, statements reviewed by um, an in-house counselor by the board has anything to do with his economic duress, nor do I think he probably is under any economic duress. So it's just an interesting, you know, it's an interesting take, I think, uh, that this, that he's coming back to the court with again. Kurt, one of the other questions we've speculated on is, say the court grants uh, the relief asked for by uh, Tesla's attorney and Musk's attorney, and they terminate the consent decree. Uh, do we then say it was never valid? We go back to where we were after the 2018 tweets. Do we simply say, well, it was effective up until the date of termination and um, no no remedies beyond the termination? Uh, or is it maybe something else? That's a great question. I, I mean, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. They've paid fines. They've set up, they put independent directors on the board. You can't just render all of that moot by saying we're now terminating the consent decree. So it would have to, I think, be the latter of your suggestions, which is maybe from this point forward, we're not going to mandate the policies that we asked Tesla to put in into effect. Meaning we're not going to have you read his tweets and have them be verified and 
um, you know, approved by someone in the company before he sends them out, which is really what he seems like he wants, he wants out of this. Um, I would argue the other thing he wants is just for the SEC to go away. And I don't think they are if he keeps tweeting like he's tweeting. It's sort of like, you know, I, he either should maybe follow this closer to the letter of law and maybe they will go away quicker. I don't know, but he seems to keep, um, like I said, being very provocative uh, and doing things that I think would probably is making his compliance officers and his board members all very queasy with what he's up to. So I, I don't think any of this stuff should be surprising to him. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think going forward, what he would ask if he could have that, I think it would be, like I said, termination of the consent decree um, sort of effective now, but not, not saying it was all, um, I don't think we can go all the way back and undo it. It was a settlement after all he agreed to it. Um, so, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, how, how the court handles what is even, what is even within its authority and jurisdiction to do. Well, that's an interesting last point because I had always understood there was a difference between a deferred prosecution agreement entered into by the Department of Justice and a consent decree entered into by the Securities and Exchange Commission because under the consent decree, a court does have continuing jurisdiction. But under the DPA, we we found out the court doesn't have any uh, jurisdiction other than just to accept the DPA. So if a court does have continuing jurisdiction of an agreed-to consent agreement, if one of the parties is aggrieved and comes forward and says we want out of it, uh, do you think a district court could make that ruling? Um, I think so. I think, you know, even the memo here points to great case law and um, even that points to the point that um, consent degrees have a mixture Mm -hmm. of both sort of contract law, but also this, as you point out, sort of ongoing judicial uh, oversight of it that um, makes it a little different than only, I think, contract law, although contract law really is the governing principles behind it. Um, and so I do think you're right that the, there could be some authority of district court to to review it and to maybe look at what even, you know, must counsel ask, which is uh, going forward, this is no longer um, tenable. This is inequitable at this point. Um, I, I get that that maybe could be the case, but um, yeah, I, I don't know if... Um, I don't know what the if, if their courts would have the appetite for that, given this set of facts and sort of this continual string of facts that suggest that this consent decree is still needed, I think, for Tesla and for Elon. So I, I don't know if there's going to be a lot uh, or many judges that would be sympathetic to this um, argument, given the behavior that Elon has continually um, been engaged in. Karen, unfortunately, we're near the end of the time for this podcast, but I guess I feel like more now than when we started, we'll have the chance to visit this again. I'm sure we will. This is Tom Fox. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I also hope you will check out a special five-part podcast series I'm running on the Innovation and Compliance podcast on Taxman, the intersection of tax and compliance. I visit with tax expert Tracy Howe on a variety of topics in this podcast series, including why tax should talk to compliance, why tax needs a seat at the table during contract negotiations, what is transfer pricing, 
tax and supply chain, and the role of tax in ESG. It's a topic that most compliance officers really don't spend enough time thinking about and working with the corporate tax function. I know you will find it incredibly useful. Thanks again for listening to the FCPA Compliance Report, and I hope you'll join us again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.